We have uh, a lot of glaciers, you know, uh, coming out in the fjord systems, and uh, very often we find polar bears nearby the, the glacier fronts. We have to think about the weather, we have to think about the drifting ice. If you drive Zodiac into a certain areas, uh, suddenly the drifting ice is returning, uh, coming by the tidewater. And then you can be closed in totally. If you stay in the water in Svalbard for four minutes, uh, you, you will probably be dead. One time I had to go to the hospital when I came back because one of my fingers was red and twice as thick as the others. So they told me if it turns blue, you have to come back and they cut it off, they said to me. I think I fall in love with Svalbard. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. We have a special guest this week, and we're joined from this gentleman from the far side of the northern Atlantic Ocean, an accomplished photographer and, and guide who has led multiple expeditions to the Svalbard Archipelago. Who's dreamt of a Nordic expedition to the land of immense fjords and polar bears? On this week's show, we'll go behind the scenes and journey with Sven Vik to learn more about this incredible part of the world. Welcome, Sven. It's great to meet you. Thank you. Not only are you farther away than any guests that we've previously, previously had on the podcast, you're also in the future. What time is it in Norway? Now it's uh, 6 p.m. in Norway. So you're six hours ahead of me, eight hours ahead of Michael and Ron. Basically, yeah. you're in the future. Yeah, Tell us I'm... about the future, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> what can we expect? Yeah, I think uh, uh, you can expect if you go to Svalbard, a fantastic uh, journey up there. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, I've seen on your website that you've been a photographer for 25 years. I love your work. I love the diversity of work in that part of the world. That frozen, mountainous, beautiful country has always been alluring to me. And on your Instagram, it was all evident there, and on your website. And I, from what I read on your website, or was that you had just recently returned, like a couple of days yeah. ago. A couple of days ago, I uh, returned from Svalbard. I stayed there for seven days, preparing uh, the coming season for my expeditions. So uh, this trip was a private trip, and we had uh, several uh, good experiences out in the field. And it was still um, uh, uh, very cold up there, minus 25 degrees uh, almost every day. So it was a little bit uh, un uh, unusual for me to stay there, and you are freezing cold the first day, but then you adapt to it. Yes, so it's, sure. it's March, but winter will persist for a while up there yet, will it not? Yeah, it will. Uh, usually uh, it's uh, snow and possible to drive snowmobile until maybe uh, mid-May. So this trip you were on a ship when you went this time? No, so this time it was snowmobile driving. Oh, no kidding. So yeah. you, you flew out to... Svalbard? To Longyearbyen. Okay. In Svalbard, yeah. And then we, uh, we drive from Longyearbyen by snowmobile, and uh, uh, it's a uh, limited area where you are uh, allowed to drive, 
because a lot of the a big part of Svalbard is national parks and uh, it's uh, some restrictions there for for motorized vehicles. So do they have do they have snow cats also, Sven, or is it just just snowmobile? Just snowmobiles uh, mostly. They have like a like a wagon with the bigger wagons with belts on, uh, but uh-huh. uh, only a few. So you said you were preparing for your trip. So your trips start what Aprilish? No, it start uh, the first trip start uh, the March thirtieth. Okay. Then oh, I, wow. Yeah. Then I do my first winter expedition for seven days, and then we camp out uh, in the ice and the field and uh, in tents, and we drive snowmobiles. That's what um, I was going to ask. It was yeah. tent. You were tenting it this time. Yeah, we do that on the first trip, but uh, my. After that, my first uh, trip uh, going by ship start uh, April 29th. Because, you know, March is still early. It's, uh, it's a lot of ice and a lot of snow. So a lot of the areas around Svalbard is not accessible by, uh, by, a, by a ship. So that's why we, why we go by snowmobile. So if you start in April doing the ship trips, then how long does that go till? What are, your, what are the opportunities? It depends on the year. It, every year is different because of uh, the ice. Can be, some years it can be a lot of ice, other years it's uh, less ice. And uh, so we have to see every year how the ice conditions are. But usually in April, uh, uh, you have to stay on the west, west coast of Spitsbergen because you don't, uh, usually it's frozen up north and to the east. And how's so, it looking this year for the ice conditions compared much, to years uh, past? You know, uh, now in March is uh, is the month of the year where uh, where the ice is uh, uh, is uh, freezing a lot. Uh, so uh, it looks very good, and uh, because we think if it's a lot of ice, it's good for the wildlife. So we want a lot of ice, and uh, this summer looks uh, everything will be frozen to the north and to the east. So if I go when I go there in late April, I maybe have to stay on the on the west coast of uh, of Spitsbergen, and uh, maybe some of the fjords on the west coast are accessible. So now, aside from obviously the the polar bears, you have Arctic fox, and then is the reindeer that are on Svalbard is that their own subspecies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, reindeers, it's a good population of reindeers. It's uh, around uh, 22,000 reindeers around in uh, in, uh, in Svalbard, so uh, it's uh, very common to see them. You encounter them on your boat tours as well, along the coast, or do you have to go inland a bit to find them? You find them everywhere. You can find them along uh, the whole coastline and uh, also in, inland, and even on the northeast land, uh, you know, the island uh, far up the northeast. Uh, you have a small population of reindeers. What does the typical trip look like? I mean, you have uh, lots of opportunity, but what's what's a typical trip? Typical trip is um, when we start out, we, we consider the ice uh, map. You know, it's uh, it's possible to read a map, uh, so you see where uh, where it's frozen and where it's possible to to sail. If it's open drift ice, we, we look for for areas like that and go in there and uh, we start uh, looking for wildlife using the binoculars uh, 20 hours a day. 
So that's the most important work we do to to work for wildlife. And uh, and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we know the area and uh, we know uh, where it's the best possibilities to find polar bears and uh, seals and uh, Arctic foxes. Reindeers. Later in the season, we also look for a lot of bird life, bird cliffs, uh, and uh, also big whales. So it depends on the season and uh, and uh, and the weather, the ice conditions, uh, where we decide to go and uh, what we decide to do. Walrus as well. Are they frequently found? Yes. Walrus. Yeah. It's a, you know. Uh, the only it's a big success uh, uh, story about wildlife in Svalbard is the walruses because they are they are increasing all the time. So the population is around uh, between four or five thousand animals now, and it was down to hundred back in the nineteen seventies. Wow! Oh wow! Great to yeah. hear. Yeah. What because what did they, they was, what did they change? Uh, they was hunting, you know, until uh, uh, around 1970. And uh, it was uh, only a small population left there. But uh, after that, uh, they have been e increasing every year. And uh, now you see really big colonies some places. Do you ever have the opportunity to photograph the big colonies or is yeah, it more yeah. in individuals? We have uh, the colonies and also individuals. Uh, if you go now in, uh, in April, uh, you usually find walruses resting on uh, drifting ice. That's very interesting to photograph and an interesting way to experience them. So uh, usually we go on land uh, close to the colonies, and but you know uh, we have to be careful because uh, sometimes some places they are a little bit shy, and uh, and if but if you spend time there, you can get uh, pretty close and have some really good experiences uh, together with the, with the, the animals in a big colony. Some places uh, you have uh, maybe thousand animals together. Wow. So if you could so, keep describing a typical trip, so if you find wildlife, what's that like? How much time do you spend? Is it all dictated by the animal? Is it dictated by the weather? And then also, how many people are going on these trips with you? Mostly use small boats, small ships, and uh, we are 12 passengers. I have uh, one bigger ship uh, where we maximum are 17. Uh, I think this is important because uh, when they go on land uh, and stay uh, close to wildlife, it's uh, less disturbance uh, when you bring small groups. It would be impossible to do things uh, like we do it if you brought 100 persons. And then uh, depending on the, on the situation, the weather, the, the, the opportunities for good pictures, uh, we can stay uh, near a wilderness colony for 10 hours. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, we let people work and uh, do their photography, and uh, if they just want to relax, uh, sitting and listening to the animals, they can do that. But also, we need to we need to uh, keep the speed up a little bit because we have to visit many places. So uh, we try to schedule different uh, places to go, and uh, and uh, so we can uh, have the best out of of, uh, of an expedition like that. And of course, uh, sometimes we meet. Um, Polar bears. If we last, like uh, uh, one of my trips uh, in uh, June last year, we found uh, a mother polar bear with two small cubs. They was uh, just laying down, resting uh, on a small island, uh, and we could uh, spend time there 12 hours. 
we had a coffee break in between because people almost froze uh, froze to death. But uh, then it went <laughs> out again. <laughs> and you said that was in June, and they were freezing to death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, snowing and uh, and uh, some wind, so it was pretty pretty cold uh, sitting in the in the zodiac boats. Nice. So we we tried to you know uh, you're a photographer, so you know. Uh, uh, you need to spend time, and some, suddenly something very interesting can happen. And animals uh, do something, or maybe the light changes, so you really can can do some uh, spectacular photographs. And so that's that's important when we're talking yeah. about your trips. Uh, two things: number one, that you're an experienced photographer, so you pay attention to things like the light and the behavior. And also, you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned that you're on Zodiac boats, so you're on the big ship where you stay, and then you, you'll depart when you find a, an opportunity like that on yeah. the Zodiacs. Yeah, you know, uh, if you if you are sailing in uh, open drift ice, then you have open, uh, like bigger drifting ice flakes around you. Sometimes we find animals on the ice, and then we, we don't want to photograph them from the from the big ship. We want to go down in the zodiacs and uh, spend time uh, together a little bit closer to the to the wildlife. And then we lower the zodiacs and go into them and maybe stay there six uh, ten hours, uh, depending on the situation. So that that uh, that's the concept. We we try to do that uh, as small as most as possible. Because yes. it gives you a different perspective. You get lower uh, compared to the to the animals. You you come down in the in their world, and you can uh, can have a have a different perspective, different uh, photographs, and you can also come closer. For photographers that are working from the zodiac, I mean that sounds ideal because of the level you're talking about, on or below the level, right there. But you wouldn't, I read this, I think, on your website as well, that on the boats, obviously, you don't have the benefit of using a tripod as well. So it's a matter of relying on modern stabilizers and yeah. hand-holding and making framing that way. And I suppose yeah. once, if you went to land with walruses or something, then you could have tripods. But for the boats, people should be prepared to hand-hold for the best results. Yeah, mostly people use hand-hold uh, uh, photography. Uh, some people, especially if you are, if you get older, uh, maybe you think the camera is a little bit heavier. Some some people use a monopod just to to rest the camera, and when something happens, they can lift it. Uh, because it's uh, almost impossible to to have good pictures with a tripod or or a monopod uh, fixed uh, down on the bottom of, of the boat. Great, just great. Because everything is moving all the time, and. Uh, <laughs> And you know, on board the, the the big ship, sometimes you do photography from there too. And uh, if the engine is running, you have vibrations in the in the hull. So so it's difficult to 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 get really sharp and good pictures using a, a tripod. So I just so, made a comment earlier saying that was not very good because I shoot a lot of videos. So when you're shooting video, it's very difficult without a tripod. In those yeah. situations, is there? I mean, I'm sure. I was going to ask you how popular is this area for. It seems like I it's been on my radar maybe the last four or five years, and I think that's all due to social media. Otherwise, I don't know that I would have known much about this area. Do you see a difference from 20 years ago till now as far as opportunities yeah. and people showing up and changes in the area? Mm, a lot more and more interest for the area. 
So now when I was in Svalbard last week, uh, I heard about uh, Disney is coming, Apple TV is coming, uh, and also another big company. They was there now. So we met a lot of filmmakers staying out in the ice, and uh, they also uh, work in summertime. But if you are filming, we need to stop the engine on board uh, the ship and try to find some, uh, some calm water and stay in the ice. Then you can do filming from the ship too. So can you, can you, is it safe to get off on the ice, on the floating ice? Yeah, that's uh, possible. Uh, not, uh, maybe not the floating ice, but uh, if we go into the fjords, we can stay on the fjord ice. And okay. if you think it's uh, very safe, uh, sometimes we let people go on, uh, on if it's a big uh, drifting, uh, drifting ice, piece of ice, we can stay on it and uh, put up your tripod and, uh, and do some filming there. There you go, Maro. Yeah, I'll be set. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> we'll back at sunset to pick you up. <laughs> you know, I always wonder. Uh, you are you are from Canada, and uh, you, it's not far from the Arctic, Canada. But it's uh, I've never been there. I think it's uh, spectacular to be there too. But Svalbard is. Uh, I think the main difference is uh, is the landscape is very different. You have the mountains, the valleys. Uh, and uh, and also uh, a big concentration of, of wildlife everywhere. Uh, I think it's more spread out in in Arctic Canada. So um, and it makes it really uh, you can uh, in a con pretty small area compared to Canada. You can uh, do a lot almost all the species you find in the Arctic. Excellent. I like the different habitat, like you say, the backgrounds, the, the fjords, the mountains, but also. I mean, Michael has done polar bears in northern Manitoba in Canada, and it's an amazing opportunity to film them there. But it's mm. all based along the shoreline, whereas yeah. in Svalbard, you have the opportunity to get them on these ice flows. And one of the most iconic images for polar bears is the idea of having water around them, either have them swimming or, mm. as I saw one of your images, leaping from one ice flow to another. Yeah. That's, a, that's a dream photograph for any wildlife photographer. Yeah. And that's a, that's more challenging to try to accomplish in in northern Manitoba versus where you are. Yes, I understand. Yeah, and also another thing uh, that's good in uh, Svalbard, you have the glaciers. You have uh, a lot of glaciers, you know, uh, coming out in the fjord systems, and uh, very often we find polar bears nearby the the glacier fronts, because you have uh, usually ice there. Uh, if it's uh, in early summer, it's frozen. Later in summer, you have uh, calving ice falling down from the glacier, and the polar bears hunt there. And uh, you have seals, and uh, also sometimes uh, walrus is nearby. So it gives some different opportunities for 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 uh, film and, and pictures. And, and the then that time ice. of year is going to be different every year, like you said earlier. It's just all dependent upon the year, so you just never know, right? No, you never know, and uh, it depends on um, on uh, what time of the year you go, and and also uh, the specific year, because it is uh, very different from year to year. So, can you say, if I was going to do a trip, I've never done a trip there before. This is the best two week time span to go with your best chances, or is that it? Just you never know. If, it depends on if you want to see a lot of wildlife, a lot of bird life, uh, and uh, and maybe have the possibility to to get into the remote areas. You would uh, 
maybe you should go later in the summer. But if you want to see fantastic light, uh, more winter, more snow, more ice, then you need to go uh, maybe April, April or May. So it's it's uh, difficult to tell. But if you really, if never have seen a polar bear or uh, never experienced the Arctic, you should go uh, maybe later in the summer, June, July, or 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 even August. Do you see polar bears on the summer trips as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? you know, if I, I think August is is the month uh, when I see uh, see uh, most polar bears. One trip okay. I did, uh, it was late July and beginning of July. Of July, we counted thirty three polar bears during one trip. Thirty three. Yeah. Wow. So, what, uh, what is the average? Around ten polar bears. I've only, out of uh, 45, 50 trips, I've uh, done one trip without seeing uh, a single polar bear. And uh, another trip we saw only one, but it was very good situation. So if you find one polar bear and you are close and you have good opportunities for opportunities for pictures, it's, uh, it's okay. It's also depending on every individual, you know. Some of the polar bears are, are very curious. They can uh, come close to the ship. Others just disappear because uh, they are not interested in us or they are just scared. So you need to be lucky to find, uh, find uh, a good individual. It sounds to me like this is an opportunity to get out there and get away from people too, right? It's not like a situation where you have three or four or ten tour boats going out and you guys oh. are all searching for bears. This is very intimate, it sounds like. It, it is. And, you know, it's, uh, several boats, uh, ships are doing, uh, doing cruises in Svalbard, but uh, on my trips, we, go, we try to go um, more remote. Uh, we go to the northeast land, even, uh, even almost uh, up to Russia. And uh, when you come there, you are pretty alone in, 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 uh, in the areas there. So when you said August for seeing the most polar bears, that's probably not the best opportunity to film them, or is it? Or does it? So I, obviously, I get what you're saying. It really depends on what you want. Do you want winter? Do you want summer? Do you want to see yeah. a lot of wildlife? Do you want to see just specific wildlife? Mm. But is it better to go in April with better photographic opportunities to film and uh, take pictures of polar bears, or is that equal in August no it's uh, you know if I if I for myself I would go in April because I think it's a fantastic uh, time of the year up there and the light is uh, much more interesting you have uh, the sunsets uh, and sunrises after April 20th you have the midnight sun in in Svalbard then uh, the light is uh, similar 24 hours every every day uh, when you, and you ha also have a lot of ice, and I like uh, to find uh, the wildlife on the ice and in the ice. Uh, if you go in August, uh, almost all ice around uh, Spitsbergen and the Northeast land is, is melted. Uh, so then it's open sea there. Then you have the glaciers. You can go close to the glaciers and find wildlife there, or you have to sail all the way up to the drift ice. And the drift ice is uh, far north and uh, up to maybe 82 degrees north or maybe further north some years. So that means um, you need to do a transport distance uh, in open water, leaving the, the, the islands of Svalbard and uh, go directly up to the drift ice.
The people that get motion sickness have to wear a lot of patches on that trip, I would suspect. Uh, we try to avoid uh, <laughs> the first days with bad weather. And uh, if it's bad weather, we just, they can do take some uh, some pills or just lay down in their bed or uh, or sit up in a steering house and uh, watch uh, the horizon because then you are better. So usually it's not uh, not a big problem. Sounds like you might sacrifice a few days during that trip just for travel in the summer yeah. if you have to go further afield. We do some transport distances and um, and. Um, uh, depending on if we choose to go um, west side and up to the north or go to the south and, south and, and to the east, uh, we need to use spend some hours sailing uh, the first day. Usually we just uh, do that and get up to the northern parts because we know it's a better chance for wildlife there. And, uh, but during the, the sailing, people can photograph landscapes. You have some bird lives uh, following the ship. And even uh, sometimes we find uh, wildlife on land, uh, and maybe we put the zodiacs on, on the water. And you film at night, because yeah. they, the light is shining at night. Yeah, right? we don't, it's we don't, softer. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. you know, if you go there in the uh, middle of July, you, the sun is, uh, is uh, high on the sky all the time. But if you work uh, during night time, the, the sun is a little bit lower and uh, the light is uh, a bit more softer than if it's uh, in the middle of the day. But that can make it challenging for dramatic light. So I see there's, a, you know, from a photographer's eye point of view, April and May might be more appealing because of the quality of light that you'd encounter. I think so. And uh, yeah. more and more people uh, want to go... Uh, uh, earlier because uh, you know the climate change is uh, is affecting Svalbard too and um, uh, during the recent years it's less and less ice every every year. Some years are better but uh, but in average uh, the ice is, is uh, you are less ice than if you go back 20 years. So you've noticed that change? Yeah, it's a big change, and we see it uh, very, very clearly. On uh, if you look at the glaciers, they are uh, they are retreating. Uh, almost all of them are retreating very, very, very fast. Has so, that impacted uh, the number of polar bears you've seen over the years? Are, are they decreasing at all yet, or not? Not according to the scientific reports, but. Uh, uh, my feeling is uh, last year I uh, did see four or five polar bears that was uh, uh, on the tin side or even skinny. So that's the first year I've seen that. So I am a little bit afraid uh, this will continue to to and uh, it will be more and more difficult to the polar bears uh, for the polar bears and other wildlife to find food there because so it's 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 less ice. Well, it'll be interesting in the years ahead, since you're watching for that, just out of your observations from your travels to see what yeah. you discover. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you see, um, if you if you watch uh, some of the glaciers, uh, you know, you have a couple of very famous uh, glaciers up there. They was um, uh, famous uh, and uh, really, really huge uh, and uh, beautiful to look at. They are uh, disappearing very fast. So um, it's big changes. So yeah, we are a little bit excited about uh, how the future will be up there, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes uh, I think maybe in 10 years, maybe this is not possible in Svalbard.
because it's too little ice and it's too difficult to the polar, for the polar bears to find food and uh, the population of polar bears uh, staying nearby this, the islands of Svalbard, they will disappear because they, they are dying. Because they are moving to the north and they follow the drift ice because it's easier for them to survive uh, up, in the, in, up in the drift ice and then they maybe they migrate over to Russia or, or over to Greenland or Canada. Or Canada. Because they are uh, traveling uh, over huge uh, areas up in the drift ice. Uh, the situation for the polar bears, they, when they're going to give birth to, the, to their cubs, they need to go on land. So the females need to, to dig, a, dig a hole in the snow and make a den on land. Uh, they cannot do that uh, up in the drift ice. So then they have to go to the islands of Svalbard uh, on land in Canada or Greenland or, or some of the Russian parts of the world. So, uh, and, uh, and this is uh, getting a bigger and bigger problem for the females because it's too far from the drift ice and uh, to the islands of Svalbard. They need to swim. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about the young and the reproduction implications. Yeah. It's always about the feeding and the compromise that way or the threat of, of limited access to seals because of the lack of ice. That's what you keep hearing in the media, not necessarily that the, the sows or females have to find land. That's a good point. They need to do. They need to find land. But, but also, we see in some of the fjords, even in, on the western side of Svalbard, uh, because the polar bears was uh, was uh, protected back in 1973. Before that, they was hunted everywhere. And uh, late, lately, the recent years, we have seen uh, they changed the behavior and come back to places that you couldn't see them before. And uh, people think that's because of uh, the hunting back then. So now the, some females are seen in the fjords and they stay there both summer and winter. And they survive there. Sorry, have they been feeding on bird colonies? What do they do in the summer? Yeah, or... they are eating everything. Uh, and sometimes uh, you, uh, some whales are to be found on the shores, shorelines, and they can feed on them for for a whole summer or maybe two years because uh, it's a lot of food there and they can eat there for, for a long time. How many times have you seen that? And is there a big congregation of bears or is it just like one, two, three rolling in? Uh, we have seen it uh, maybe three, four times. I've seen uh, polar bears gathering uh, nearby carcasses from walruses or, or, or even whales. I think uh, uh, polar bears are feeding a lot on carcasses, but uh, it's not, all, not always we find them, you know. Right. You, saw the, you mentioned the polar bear jumping from uh, one ice floe to another. Uh, nearby we found a dead narwhal. So we counted 15 oh, wow. polar bears in the same area. Oh wow! So that was a really fantastic night. We had a lot of different behavior and uh, polar bears everywhere. So um, and then you have a really good photographic uh, opportunities too. What a discovery! Yeah. Do you see narwhals very often? No, I, you know, in Svalbard, it's not so often to see narwhals alive. I found two of them dead in the ice. And I think maybe the polar bears uh, hunt, hunt them in the ice and they can take them and drag, drag them up on the ice and eat them. But I know uh, further up uh, in the northern parts of, uh, of Svalbard in the drift ice, uh, we can find Norway's, but then you need to go into the ice. Oh, that'd be amazing to see. Yeah. It sounds like you have a pretty awesome job and it's it, this is just starting your season right, right, right now. So you've got to be pretty excited, right? 
yeah, it's uh, it's uh, fantastic to come up there every time. Uh, uh, I did this trip now; it was private uh, a little bit because I want to organize and uh, and start to 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 see how the conditions will be this year, but also to get out in the field myself. I, I love that. So every trip is different, and uh, something new is happening every time. When you travel out there on the snow machines and you're staying in tents, is that something where you'll set up like electric fences around the camps at, during yeah. when that's set up, or that's what we do for grizzly bears or brown bears? But yeah. is we that an opportunity to see those uh, polar bears when you're up there on the on the snow machines? Yeah, it is possible, but you know. Uh, uh, when you go on snow machines, uh, the environmental uh, restrictions are, are are very restricted up in Svalbard. So we, uh, we have to be careful uh, about how close we go and how we do things. And it's uh, in wintertime, it's a regulated area. Uh, they call it Area 10. Uh, and all people going there for just for driving snowmobile or for photographing have to stay in this area. So it's not so easy because you're competing with a lot of other tourists up there. But um, if you know how to do it, maybe we spend a lot of time out uh, during nighttime and sleep in daytime. Because uh, in daytime, it's a lot of uh, tourists are drinking coffee. <laughs> but in nighttime, they are going back to the city and we can stay out together with the polar bears. Sven, you do, you do photography on uh, mainland Norway as well, correct? Yeah, I, uh, that was my. Uh, I started out in uh, in Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, photographing uh, some of the species we have here: brown bears, uh, wolves, uh, golden eagles, uh, sea eagles, uh, and also some landscapes. But uh, after I started my expedition in Svalbard, uh, I think I fall in love with Svalbard. So now, so now I'm uh, mostly of the time uh, during summer I'm up there. It sounds like it'd be easy to do, and once you find that place that's special to you, it's hard to leave it. Yeah, it is, and uh, I really love the Arctic, the high Arctic. I also would like to go to to Arctic Canada and the Greenland as well, but it's uh, uh, I will do that someday. But uh, Svalbard is really fantastic, and it's as I said earlier, it's a very comprimated uh, area. You have a lot of wildlife in a small area. And you have the mountains and the valleys and the glaciers and rivers and everything. So it's uh, fantastic up there. So for people who join you on your expeditions in the first month or two, when it's clearly still winter, a lot of people enjoy that challenge of the Arctic, the cold environment, but not everybody. So there must be clientele. Do you have recommendations as far as gear that they would bring so they can stay warm, whether it's the right kind of outer clothing or do you offer that to them on the trip do you have parkas and stuff for them or do they bring their own and you just recommend this style and as far as for a photographer you know we're vulnerable for our fingertips right we need to be yeah. working our equipment with all these little tiny buttons and dials and mm -hmm. so you know what do you recommend for people who come along to maximize or keep them comfortable in the field and maximize their sh photographic opportunities well, we do. Uh, we have a packing list, a recommended list for uh, what uh, kind of clothing you need, like uh, inner and uh, how many layers, and uh, also outer clothing and uh, boots and everything. Uh, when you mention uh, what to put on your finger, it's not so easy because uh, I've been looking for that uh, for ten years. I still uh, don't have the perfect solution. 
So uh, <laughs> when you go in winter, winter time, you don't feel your fingers for half an hour after you have been photographing. Of course, everybody's <laughs> sitting on their hands back on the ship, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about electric gloves or electric uh, socks or gloves? Do you any play with any of that? But you know, uh, it's possible to use that, and uh, and especially when you are on board a ship, it's possible because you can go on board and uh, and uh, if it's something wrong with the battery or electric system, system, you can do something about it. And you know, but when you are there in winter time, you are out all the time. It's uh, I am afraid if it uh, suddenly stops working, you don't have anything. So I don't use that in winter time. Okay, so do you, in Norway, I don't know, I assume they're available. Do you take the hot hands and fill your mitts with the hot hands too or the, and the toe warmers? Do you use those uh, there? Yeah, I've tried that. But uh, they are not uh, working properly all the time either. So I try right. to, to, to use the, the old ways, like uh, keeping warm uh, without things like that. But I have it in my in my uh, backpack and my equipment, so I can use it if it's uh, really cold. What are the old ways? Like um, find old a good uh, type of clothing and uh, try to find a really good solution uh, for what you are doing. Okay. One time I had to go to the hospital when I came back because one of my fingers was red and twice as thick as the others. So it was a little bit, uh, they told me if it turns blue, you have to come back and they cut it off, they said to me. Right. So it's, uh, but that is, that's in wintertime and, uh, and, and April can be really cold. So we have to watch, uh, watch out for that. Uh, and we try to help uh, customers uh, to, to, to stay warm and, uh, and don't uh, risk any frostbites. Sure. You know, in summertime, when we go by the Zodiacs, we have, uh, we provide every guest with uh, with a really warm outer clothing. It's uh, like what you say in English, it's covering a dress, covering all your body. It's like outer clothing. And you can stay in the Zodiacs for, for hours without uh, being cold. Is that like a survival suit, one of those orange survival suits? Yeah, it's not a survival suit, but it's a floating suit, So and it's really warm, uh, as long as you don't, don't fall in the water. But you will float if you fall in the water. And just hope that you get picked up within 10 minutes. Or maybe before four, otherwise you are dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you stay in the water in Svalbard for four minutes, uh, you, you will probably be dead by then. Because you're... Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, that's maximum because uh, mostly most people would uh, have problems after two minutes because uh, your body temperature is uh, going down really fast. So mm -hmm. we don't want that to happen. No, and no. you might want to comfort our listeners and tell them that, that uh, everybody's come back with you, I assume, in all of your expeditions. Yeah. And we, we, uh, you know, safety is really important in Svalbard. It's uh, when we drive Zodiacs, uh, we have to think about the weather, we have to think about the drifting ice. If you drive Zodiac into a certain areas, uh, suddenly the drifting ice is returning, uh, coming by the tidewater. And then you can be closed in totally. I have experienced that a couple of times. It's not uh, so fun. Uh, and then you have to call uh, the mothership and have some help. And we have uh, fog uh, up in uh, far north. Suddenly you have foggy uh, situation, so you, do, you don't see anything. And also, of course, uh, polar bears. You always have to think about polar bears. If we go on land, we have to do watches and, 
and look for polar bears all the time. Be ready to escape, uh, evacuate the area, or sometimes uh, if the polar bear is coming too fast, we have to scare them. So on the Zodiac, how far would you wander from the mothership at times? Is it just a matter of a few hundred yards to shore, or do you go further afield on the Zodiac? No, it depends. Uh, maybe the longest uh, hikings we do is maybe totally three kilometers from uh, both directions, one and a half direction, uh, kilometer one direction, to find uh, Arctic fox dens or bird colonies. We can uh, we can do hikings like that, but mostly we walk maybe two, three, four hundred meters because we, we it can be close by a walrus colony and then. It, land the zodiacs uh, one place and walk over to the to the walrus mm. so it's uh, it's not very demanding hikings uh, the only thing we always have to to watch for for polar bears and uh, of course uh, bad weather and things like that and we do things like that. well it sounds like an exciting adventure yeah it is stay awake <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you don't sleep so much when you are up there, because uh, no. we, we wake people if something happens, even if it's uh, middle of night or middle of day, it doesn't matter. We just wake them. Mm -hmm. So uh, because we we are watching all the time, uh, the guides are are trying to to watch for wildlife uh, all the time. If it's any possibility to to see wildlife from the ship, sure. So, that's why people are there. Yeah, that's why they are there, and uh, and we need to to use every minute uh, as uh, as good as uh, possible to make a good experience for for our customers. I don't know if we've covered it, but how long do the ships go out for on your trips? Are they always seven days? Are they nine days? Are they variable length? Are they twelve day trips? We do most of the trips are ten nights, ten nights and eleven days. Um, but if you go early in April, we can do eight nights and uh, nine days. Because in early April, we, we don't need to do this uh, long transport distances because it's more ice. But in uh, July and August, the, we need to, to travel uh, longer distances to, to get into the areas we want to go to. And then we need more, more, more time. I've also done a couple of, uh, of more extreme uh, longer trips uh, lasting 14, uh, 14 nights, 15 days. Then we can, uh, if you want to, we can anchor for two days and uh, spend time together with some uh, some wildlife or interesting uh, interesting places. What's what's your all-time favorite wildlife encounter in the Arctic? Uh, it's uh, difficult to, but I, many uh, very spectacular and interesting situations. Uh, uh, meeting polar bears. Uh, uh, maybe polar bear families, uh, mother with small. Uh, if they are uh, want to cooperate with us and don't uh, escape, we can spend a lot of time together with them. But maybe I told you about the narwhal in the ice, and we had 15 polar bears there. That it was a lot of behavior, and during 24 hours, we I think I had uh, six, seven thousand pictures there during uh, <laughs> four hours. So and it, and the light was fantastic and uh, everything was good. But it, it's a lot of situations. We have we have seen uh, blue whales uh, very close to the ship um, for for one hour and uh, staying together with them. And the Arctic foxes uh, nearby dens with the cubs uh, playing uh, together with the mother. So it's a lot of situations. So it's difficult to tell you uh, what the greatest experience is, but it's a lot of them. Yeah. Are there very many species of whales that you have the possibility of encountering, and does that change through the season? Yeah, it's um, late summer is uh, better for whales. July, August, 
we have the blue whale, we have the fin whale, we have the bowhead uh, whales, if you are lucky. Uh, they are more rare. And the uh, humpback whales, you have the minky whale. Orcas? So, orcas is very rare. I, I know people have seen orcas, but it's uh, not common to see that. It's uh, too far north. But well, I think they will uh, suddenly they will show up there because, uh, you know, uh, the Arctic is changing because it's warmer water uh, to see, um, like... Uh, like humpback whales is more and more common. It was not so common uh, ten years ago, and mm -hmm. I think the orcas will uh, will follow too, because you have more fish in the waters there, and uh, so they come for the food and uh, will hunt up there. I think in the future. Mm -hmm. I hear they're expanding across the northern Arctic in Canada right now. Yeah, yeah. With less sea ice, they've been found yeah. in places they've never been found before. In fact, there've yeah. been times where the ice has come in and they seem to be trapped for yeah. a period too. Mm -hmm. So. They're expanding, but it would be amazing to see a bowhead or a blue whale. That would be a life experience to see either yeah. of those. Yeah, blue whales are pretty common now. If you go late in late summer, you need to you can see them earlier too. But it's more of them in July and August. Even in the fjord system, you can find uh, find blue whales now. That would be pretty amazing to see the yeah. largest animal on the planet. Yeah. They are huge, and uh, they can be. If you think about, they can be hundred years old. You, yeah, right. it's a lot of feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. So, for people that want to go on a trip with you, what's the best way to figure that stuff out? Do you guys have a website that you'd send them to? To your website, what is the best? Yeah, we we use our website and uh, social media. Uh, mainly to market uh, our trips and uh, they can read about uh, the specific trips and uh, our blogs there. I was on your website and it was well laid out as far as the trip opportunities. You could see yeah. it there. And so we'll have that in the show notes. We'll have a link to the website yeah. as well so people can see that. I even already have some customers from Canada, you know. I think uh, this year I have two people from Canada already. So. Well, you might have more down the road. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have another question. I noticed on your website that you have a hide or a blind for golden eagles and goshawks. Yeah. I don't know if that's the same one, but it seemed to be near your base. Is that something that people can do before or after a, a trip on a ship, or does that match up seasonally? No, see it, it, it doesn't. It's uh, like a winter product uh, on mainland Norway. So you need to go uh, in the hides. Uh, you start in November and end it in uh, in mid March, okay. because uh, because uh, mid March the nesting season is starting and uh, then the golden eagles and goshawks are are more difficult to, to get into the bay and, and the nearby the heights. So it's difficult to to both things uh, when you go to mm -hmm. Svalbard. Okay, yeah. good to know. I didn't know because if you could add it on a few days before or after, that would yeah. be an incredible if you, experience. If you, in, uh, if you travel in March, it's possible. Then we could right. do Gosok and, uh, and the Golden Eagles in Norway, and then you could go up to, to Svalbard after. It's possible to do uh, expeditions in Svalbard by ship uh, already in March. I think sounds like you need a whole summer to do all we need is a All we need is a free summer, yeah. yeah <laughs> I like the idea of touring Scandinavia, seeing Norway and the neighboring countries, but to make the center of it a trip with you, and then after that so catch the early part of the season the the better light the better ice and then yeah. go from there and do some other touring across that part of the world yeah but to see it uh, through your eyes and your experience and your guiding would be a lot of fun you know you have uh, we are working on that for the future we are thinking about and uh, and uh, 
cladding, some uh, ship cruises along the Norwegian coastline, uh, because no one is doing that. Uh, it's, it's some uh, activity doing whale safaris around Tromsø, but we also have some uh, really good uh, uh, bird cliffs and uh, bird destinations along the coastline. So, and that could be that can be possible in April, May, June. It's uh, some really good places uh, in in Norway, uh, mainland, and uh, and maybe combine it uh, going to Svalbard after that. You know, northern part of uh, Norway is almost uh, it looks the same uh, as in Svalbard. It's the same landscape. You know, it's almost at the same uh, altitude. Sure. Yeah. And the same, uh, some of the same wildlife, uh, bird species, it's the same species uh, you can find in Svalbard. I'd like to tour some of the small settlements in the fjords and stuff, and just to, and just to experience that lifestyle, right? Yeah. Wildlife is, is, would be the backbone of the trip, but while traveling that far and spending so much to get there, to add on a couple of weeks to experience, mm -hmm. you know, what it's like to live there and meet the people and, and see that culture and, and learn about that would be very interesting. Yeah. yeah, some places you can you can still do that. You know, the fishermen and uh, the local culture is is still alive uh, along the coastline of Norway. Mm -hmm. So that is possible. And uh, even some places, uh, places they are combining their uh, fisheries uh, together with uh, with uh, tourism. Mm -hmm. More and more people are doing that uh, up north Norway. Right, it would make yeah. sense. Yeah. Guys, yeah. So, Tourism will only increase, I expect, there. Oh, I think so. I think so. So uh, I saw that you have a few books out. Are, are any of the books recent? I didn't see them on the website. Now, I know people can see your excellent photography on your website because when they look at the tours, your photographs are there of polar bears and, and other things. And then I know on your Instagram feed, there there's a lot of variety there for wildlife, too. But mm -hmm. I'm just curious about the books that you've done. I made three books, uh, but it was from uh, mainland Norway. Uh, okay. one, uh, one photographic book from from the area where, where I live, like it was landscape, nature, culture. And I also done two two books uh, about uh, mammals on the mainland of Norway. Smaller, like a field book and uh, one book for children. Oh, very good. Yeah. So, nice. You know, and I've also been uh, doing a lot of freelancing, writing articles, uh, selling pictures in in the Nordic countries. Uh, right now, I'm uh, I'm working on a project in Svalbard. It will end up uh, uh, with a book, I think, and maybe uh, maybe a, a film. I don't know yet. I will see. Oh, right very good. Now, right now, I'm buying a red camera from uh, United States, so that's something new from me. For me, so that's Mike. Michael is the guy to talk to about the red system. Yeah, he's got it all down. I'll be yeah. curious to see how it works for you in the cold, cold temperatures. <laughs> and then just yeah. buy lots of batteries. You'll need a lot of batteries. My Norwegian friend, you know, Oscar Helgestad. He, I've been, uh, we have been traveling a lot together. He made uh, this climate film uh, uh, last year. So we have a lot of experience uh, about that. So uh, I think we have some tricks we can use to keep the battery alive. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's there's always a trick, right? There's always a way to figure it out. Yeah, it is. You know, um, if you go in winter time in Svalbard, even for uh, for my cameras, for my Canon equipment, I need uh, I put the batteries uh, on my body inside the the clothings. 
because if you keep them in the in the in your backpack uh, when you need them they they won't work so if you stay out several several days you need to keep the batteries on your body to keep them warm there you go there's a tip tip of the yeah. podcast so yeah. i have a vest vest inside with 15 yeah. pockets and it's all yeah. full of batteries yeah <laughs> right I'm going to try to find them. You, when you take out your fingers, you don't feel your fingers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. the, the high Arctic, it's always uh, everything you're going to do is uh, taking a lot of time, depending on how cold it is. If it's uh, in wintertime, uh, everything is really slow. Start up your camera, put up your tripod, everything. You have a lot of clothes on. And also a little bit uh, the same in summertime. Even, even if it's warmer, you usually have a lot of clothes and uh, it's uh, more difficult to move around. So... Things take more. Things take more time when you work in the Arctic, uh, doing photography. You well, know, you have to be careful, and I'm sure it's a big part of your, your focus and your guide's focus to make sure that your clients are paying attention to temperature. Yeah. And looking after themselves that way, right? Yeah. So doing it more slowly and not, not risking exposure just to get a few more pictures by leaving their hands out of their mitts longer. Yeah. You know, it could rec- ruin the rest of their afternoon. Yeah, it can. You can really have some problems uh, if if you if you don't think about it. So we try to tell them and uh, watch them all the time to give them some advices uh, about that. Okay, let me let me ask you uh, let me ask you a question. This is something I've done that I've discovered. We've we've talked about this in a podcast, and I don't expect you've tried it, but if you have, I'll get a big laugh out of it. You know the hand warmers that we have talked about. You yeah. shake, and they're supposed to stay warm for six or eight hours, mm-hmm. and they can be effective. And I assume where you are in the high Arctic, you have, you don't just wear a winter hat or a toque, as we call them in Canada, but you have a full face covering at times because of the yeah. wind chill factor. You wear a balaclava. Yeah. Have you ever used those hand warmers and shoved them in the cheeks of your balaclava to stay warm? No, I haven't. Try it. Try it. It'll... I haven't tried that. So if you wear two layers of balaclavas, right, yeah. and, and layering is the big thing to stay yeah. warm. You always take a layer off, mm. but having that layer, you've got a little bit of air between them. It's mm. better for insulation. So I'll have two balaclavas on and then a winter hat or two over top of that. But if mm. I put the hand warmers in between the balaclavas on my cheeks, I swear it keeps me warm for a couple more hours. I would think about that. To try that. <laughs> you know, usually uh, the balaclavas, we use them mainly when we drive snowmobile because you have the wind against you. So it's even colder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very. It's not so often I use balaclavas when we are uh, standing and photographing. Sometimes in wintertime you need it because it's really cold. But uh, mostly it's uh, when I'm driving. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I would think about that. Uh, and I know uh, you know uh, maybe the part of my body I need these uh, warmers. It's my feet. But you yes. know. When- if you put this down in your boots, uh, it's not so much oxygen there. So it, I, some people have told me it's not working properly, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Well, after all the expeditions you've done, you'd be a great person to recommend the best boots to have for that kind of high Arctic experience. What do you use? We use, uh, what they call, they are the Baffin Baffin boots, yeah. That's what I have. I have the big green Baffin ones. They're really big and heavy. And it's like walking on a cloud. They're so comfortable. It is. Yes. And they're really warm. But the problem is if you you wear them uh, all day, you get a little bit sweaty. And uh, in the evening, uh, after 12 hours, you you start to to get cold on your feet too. Right. So, yeah. But you'd have... 
So you'd pull the liners out and dry them overnight on the ship. Yeah. Or for someone like you, if you're on the ship, why not have two pairs and then you could switch at midday and dry the other ones. But uh, there must be some weight restriction for your clients or how does that work? Or is it just what they're limited to on the planes to get to you? Once they're on the ship, it doesn't matter what they bring or how does that work? In summertime, uh, you don't need uh, boots like that. Uh, maybe if you go in uh, April, you could uh, need something like that. But in in May, uh, June, uh, July, August, it's uh, much warmer. It can be some days you can have uh, 20 plus Celsius. So uh, then we, uh, we recommend just hiking boots okay. or sometimes even rubber boots, depending on if you if you're going on land, you have to jump from the Zodiac on land. Sometimes we, we have to, to step in the water. So um, I also recommend, uh, you know, the uh, in like a thermal uh, boots, they are like uh, higher and they are warmer, but they are almost like rubber boots. Sometimes mm -hmm. uh, we have that on board the ship, so I so I if some people need it, I, I just lend them a pair of, of that, so they are warmer and also higher, so they don't get wet when they jump from the zodiac and they want to go on land. Sure. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, myself usually I use a dry suit in summertime. Okay. Yeah, because then everything, if I fall overboard, uh, I will float and uh, it's uh, totally windproof, so you don't feel any wind. And if you have uh, good clothing under, you don't uh, get cold. And again, if it's some problems, uh, if it's shallow water and my zodiac is stuck on a rock or something, I just jump overboard and, uh, and uh, can fix everything with the clients on board the Zodiac. Right. So, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, for the driver, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, good equipment to have to, to, to do things if you have problems or if you have to go on land and you, the Zodiac stop maybe two meters from land, the, the guests uh, maybe have problems to, to get on land. So then you just jump on board and, uh, and walk in the water. Do you ever hmm. have guests wear dry suits? Yeah, some guests, uh, more do. professional photographers have uh, have used that. Okay. Yeah, but mostly, you know, mostly it's amateur photographers. They are they are not uh, uh, that professional, so the, the, so they so they never use that. They use regular clothes. Right. So I I I don't know how people in Canada. Uh, I think they must be. More like Norwegians, they are they are used to to nature and uh, cold winters and uh, and uh, difficult. They are used to walk in uh, in uh, in nature, like in mountains and forests. So uh, if you have guests from Canada, I expect them to to handle this very very easily. <laughs> but if you have guests from Spain or or China, they have never tried this. So, so you need to help them a lot to, to have good clothing and even to walk in difficult terrain is difficult for them. True. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. So you would, yeah. yeah, you almost, you would almost want to have a whole wardrobe on your ship ready yeah, for some of these clients from other countries, yeah. warmer climates. Yeah, yeah. And some customers from the United States, uh, they are not so used to this uh, wide nature. So they often ask me about if I have warm boots for them and uh, warm clothing and gloves and everything. So I try to to help them if they if they need that. Sure. Yeah, well, you keep the customers comfortable means that they're happy. Yeah, it's right. important so. to at least keep warm. Otherwise, uh, 
if you are freezing cold, it's difficult to, to, to do some good photography too. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, uh, on board the ship, uh, you know, it's very comfortable on board the ship. We have a chef there. It's, uh, usually they make really good food. So we have three meals every day. A good dinner with uh, with uh, a main meal and, uh, and a dessert. So, um, and um, when we do photography, if we go out in the field, we try to schedule everything uh, uh, according uh, between the meals. And if we have something really interesting, we just skip the meals for the meal and uh, stay out. And then we have some food when we come back because we don't want to leave. Uh, something interesting uh, to photograph. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a priority for people like yeah. us. That's that's what we like to hear. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I have to tell the chef, you know, otherwise he kills me when I come back. <laughs> Get in trouble. Yeah. So with the three ships that you have, are, are they or it looked like on your website there were three ships. Do you choose depending on the time of year between each one, or are they going simultaneously to different destinations? Yeah, they, they, we, are, we are using them using them simultaneously. But you know, the, the, the challenge is for me, some of these ships are, are very popular. So it's not only me that wants to charter them. So it's a competition okay. to, to have the, the dates, uh, the time of the year I want. So I use this Amas Malmö, Amas Freya, and now we have started to use Amas Polar Star. It's a new ship. We're going to use that from 2020. So it will, uh, we use them uh, with a little bit different purposes. The Freya is very comfortable. Uh, the cabins are uh, almost new. So you, st you have better uh, beds, better cabins, uh, more spacious cabins. And uh, on Amas Malmö is older. It's more like it's very a good ship in in the ice. It's very uh, very flexible, smaller than Freya, but the cabins are, are not that comfortable. You have uh, upper and lower bunks to sleep in, not beds side by side. And now okay. the last, yeah, upper. Sure. And the last sure. ship uh, we start to use in 2020 is this uh, Polar Star. I believe I have not uh, used it before, but. Uh, it's an old uh, seal hunting ship. It was used uh, in the Greenland ice back in the 60s, 70s, 80s for hunting seals. Western part of Norway, we have a tradition and it was a lot of skilled people hunting seals there. So some mm -hmm. of them that even went on this seal hunting period, they are still alive. So we're going to bring them on the first trips. So we're going to teach the new skippers how to sail in ice because that's... Oh, right. That is not so easy. You need right. to know how to do that. And you need a really good ship for it. Because uh, first, it takes a lot of time. It's a, if it's a lot of ice, uh, you have to lower your speed. And uh, if, you are, if you don't know how to, how to use the ship in ice, it's going even slower. So that's, uh, this, uh, this ship will be a kind of extreme ship for really extreme photographic trips. So that's the plan. It can handle everything uh, in the ice, and uh, the engine is big, and uh, the skippers and the crew is really, really good in the ice. So this uh, this ship uh, will be used for extreme uh, photography trips in the future. Wow! And that would still be about twelve people on that ship. Ah, uh, we can bring more people there. I've, my plan is to bring sixteen. Okay. And then we will uh, use uh, three zodiacs and uh, three guides. 
And uh, if you bring 16 people, it's uh, registered for 24. So we have uh, beds for 24 people, but uh, I think 16, then you can use a lot of single cabins. Some people want single cabins, so it's, uh, and they bring a lot of equipment, uh, they need uh, more space. Yeah, and the Polar Star is uh, the plan there is to search more for Narvale and uh, Bowhead Vale because we will go uh, far north and far east up into our area in the Arctic Ocean where uh, the science, its scientific reports uh, uh, shows that it's a good place for Bowhead Vales and Narvales. So, that would uh, be amazing. Yeah. And that's 2020, the first expedition with that. Yeah. Okay. So then we just leave uh, the, the the islands around Svalbard. We just leave them and uh, sail straight up to the drift ice and spend all the time up in the drift ice. Then we have polar bears, uh, seals, whales, uh, bird life, etc. up there. And uh, but we don't spend uh, so much time along the coastlines uh, of Svalbard. And in that expedition is that a late spring or summer? It will be more midsummer. Midsummer. Yeah, okay. Because in in early spring you don't it's uh, solid ice up there so you don't sure, uh, sure. get through so it needs to be later in July August and September. Okay. Yeah. Would September be better than July and August for light because it's starting to get shorter day length again? Would yeah, you say? It will. Okay. September is fantastic uh, if you think about the light. Uh, and we every year I do one trip in September, and uh, the light is amazing. But, you know, then it's more difficult to find the polar bears on the ice. You need to go up in the drift ice. Some years, the edge of the drift ice can be at 8 to 3 degrees north. So it's, uh, it's a long sailing. How long would that be to get to 83 degrees north from you? Maybe from if you leave, when you leave Svalbard Islands, uh, you, maybe you need to use 16, 18 hours okay. of sailing from the, the last part of the island and up to the edge of the, of the drift ice. So that's impressive that this ship can go so far and have enough fuel to spend that time up there and still make it back. Yeah. You know, uh, the Sysselmannen, the local authorities in Svalbard, they don't like it. Because if something happens, it's a, it's a long way to go to, to rescue people. True. So, but we, we need to go there anyway. Right. <laughs> it's all part of exploring and adventure, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you so, know, of course, we need to think about the security all the time. So we have to consider weather and uh, everything before we do it. So we don't want uh, to do some stupid things uh, and, uh, and have some accidents and, and problems. So this is a very important part of, of uh, the planning and the job we do to keep the ship safe and everyone, everyone on board safe, safe during the expedition. Of course. So as we're recording today's podcast, you are just about to start this year's expeditions. How many days before you leave on the first one? Now I go up to Svalbard uh, March 18th and okay. then I stay there for three weeks. Uh, and the last, uh, my uh, first expedition uh, with customers is from uh, March 30th by snowmobile. And then I come home uh, around uh, April 9th and uh, stay home a uh, couple of weeks and uh, go up there again uh, for my first expedition by ship uh, the 29th of April. Very good. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's um, it's kind of, for me, it's very interesting when I go on the first expedition, it's uh, winter time. 
And then I, uh, during uh, the coming expeditions, it's more and more spring, and uh, then you get into summer. And uh, in August, uh, you have uh, then you have uh, more of the reddish light because the sun is uh, coming lower and lower. So we have the sunsets and sunrises in late August. And in September, uh, things start to freeze up again. And uh, you have the red light and uh, and a totally different uh, environment because all the ice around the, the Svalbard Islands are have disappeared. And up in the drift ice, uh, new ice is uh, starting to freeze up. So it's and the, the animals and the wildlife are uh, are changing all the time uh, during uh, during this period. Mm -hmm. yeah. It would be amazing to do it through the seasons like you're able to and to see that yeah. change and the variety of wildlife. I mean, if somebody had that good fortune, so you even go as late as October. I think I saw. Is that right? Yeah, that's something new I would try this year. Uh, but then we stay uh, mainly nearby uh, the fjord system outside Longyearbyen. Because the big ships, they are left for the mainland. They don't stay up there during winter. So we use smaller, like um, like ribs, but they are built in so you can stay inside and uh, cruise around in, in the fuel system of East Fjorda. Mm. So the plan is to, and you know, in October, I discovered that last year, the light, light is uh, totally amazing. It's very short days, only six hours uh, daylight, but uh, the light is uh, it's unbelievable in, in October. If, if you have uh, good conditions, good weather, it's, uh, I've never seen anything like that. You can probably get northern lights then as well. Yeah, right? you can. If you, after mid-October, it's, uh, it's more and more, more good conditions to see northern light. Mm -hmm. And still see bears then? There's still the yeah. chance? Really? We can't okay. but, uh, that's the plan, but I don't, uh, I focus more on the landscapes and Arctic foxes, reindeers, maybe we can find polar bears in the fjords because they are there uh, during uh, all summer and, and all winter. But you, you know, uh, like uh, all bears, when, uh, when the autumn and, and the winter is coming, they are slowing down the speed, sleep more uh, because they don't find so much food anymore. So they just lay around uh, and rest as, as much as possible, waiting for the, the, the fjords to freeze up again so they can start hunting. So if you find the polar bear, it's just uh, laying around or they don't do so much. But uh, okay. if you're lucky, we can have them in front of a glacier. Right. So that's the plan. So for polar bear activity, would spring be best? Like, I know you said you see a lot in August, but as far as the the dream images from a photographer's point of view and coupling that with the potential activity, would, yeah. would April be, April, May? April, May is a very good time, uh, after my opinion. Okay. We have done uh, several trips uh, the last two years in uh, in uh, May and, uh, and also early June. Usually we have uh, around 20, 10 to 12 polar bears and uh, some of them are close to the ship. Uh, the challenge in uh, April, May can be because we have a lot of ice still. So maybe we find a polar bear, but it's uh, two kilometers uh, in, into the ice uh, and they are not uh, bothering about uh, coming over to the ship. So we just see them in long distance. But uh, usually we have some polar bears that uh, come close to the ship. And the light is much more interesting. Right. Yeah, that's it. You've got to balance that, right? So yeah. there's a better chance in June to have a polar bear close to the ship yeah. or to the Zodiac. But then the light, you're near the solstice. And yeah. it's 
the light is the same 24 hours almost. So it's it's not so spectacular, but you can see a lot of behavior and uh, sure. and uh, interesting situations uh, with the wildlife. At 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you can. And also, if you if you want, uh, I like to I like to use the landscape, the glaciers and the ice and everything in my pictures uh, and. Uh, uh, that's easier in uh, in April, May, uh, early June because you have a lot of ice. Right. And, uh, nearby the mountains, and you even have snow on the mountains still. But if you come uh, uh, late June, uh, all the snow in the mountains have melted. So then they are like gray and uh, uh, not so interesting because the snow has disappeared. Well, you've got situations and trips for every kind of person, right? You've got so in yeah. later in June, if you don't want to risk the fingertips as much and and want to see lots of wildlife you'll get to see it yeah magical light earlier and later yeah. and the wildlife opportunities are there cross your fingers and keep your fingers warm yeah you know right. uh, i try to recommend to people to, to go uh, several trips sure you know? well that's what i was thinking the yeah. ideal would be right from the beginning through the end and yeah. see the the whole change, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's understandable that they, they don't uh, do that because for some people, it's a once in a lifetime uh, trip because it's uh, pretty expensive. And uh, some people come do more several trips. Maybe they come. Uh, some of them coming every year, choosing different times of the year to have different types of light, different types of environment, uh, and different types of uh, behavior among the wildlife. Mm -hmm. Well, for those that can afford that, that's the, that would be amazing. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Some professional photographers they do that. They they have a project, film or whatever, so they spend some money on it, on right. some time. Yeah. Sven, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's yeah. it's been fantastic, and, and uh, it's great to to put a face with those conversations and. I definitely look forward to hopefully going with you here in the near future. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting to meet you guys. And uh, like I said earlier, uh, Canada is, uh, I've never been there, but uh, you know, uh, I think it's uh, an amazing country on the, on the similar nature to, to the Nordic countries. In so, the Arctic, yes. Yeah, in the Arctic and uh, yeah. Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to hear about your business and your photography and the exciting year you have ahead of you. Thank you. In closing, I'd like to thank our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. And remember that no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, to hit that follow, subscribe button. If it's on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. If it's on the podcast, the five stars. Those positive reviews help us to continue to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. I also invite you to check us out on Instagram, Facebook, our YouTube channel, and of course, on our website at wildandexposed.com. And today's podcast, go there when you finish listening, look at the show notes, look at the imagery and the links that we'll have there so you can dive deeper into this subject and with Sven's uh, photo tours and workshops that he offers in the field in Svalbard. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.